A hush fell over the crowd. We're studying the gospel according to Luke. If you'd open your Bibles to chapter 2, we're putting in at verse 21 this morning. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 21. As soon as we find our place, I'm going to read verses 21 through 51. as soon as we find our place or when I get tired of waiting, so. (laughs) Some of you I know do that on purpose. (laughs) And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem." So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers." 
So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we can open your word, read it carefully, and then, uh, Lord, talk about it. More than that, Lord, we have a, a sense that your Holy Spirit is attending the services here, that Jesus is walking in the midst of us, and that this word is alive and powerful and able to penetrate through our hearing and into our hearts to make necessary changes in our lives, to thrill us, Lord, with a sense of your presence here and in our lives as we leave this place. And so I pray that we would get all and more that we uh, could even abundantly ask for, Lord, as we study your word this morning. By your spirit, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. By the time he was 12 years old, Jesus had accompanied Joseph and Mary to the temple at Jerusalem at least 13 times, once when he was 40 days old, and then once each year for the next 12 years. It is remarkable because children were not required to go there at all. Mary was required by Jewish religious law to present Jesus to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice 40 days after his birth, but these rituals did not require that the baby be present. Jewish men were required to make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, but their wives and children need not accompany them. After eight days, Jesus was circumcised according to Jewish law. After 40 days, he was presented and his mother purified according to Jewish law. And once a year, his stepdad, Joseph, made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, again according to Jewish law, taking the whole family with him. We can conclude at least two things from these observations. One, Joseph and Mary were eager to perform everything required of them by the letter of the Jewish law. And two, Joseph and Mary were excited to promote the spirit of the Jewish law. These events were more than religious rituals in their family. They approached them in a way that spoke of a real, vital, living relationship with God. We can learn some things about family and parenting from Joseph and Mary. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, your parenting can furnish a spiritual background for your kids. And number two, your kids can find their spiritual business from your parenting. First of all, let's look at verses 21 through 38. Your parenting can furnish a spiritual background for your kids. These verses were not written primarily as a text on parenting. Luke didn't sit down and write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts because Theophilus was having trouble with Theo Jr. I know that. However, we can still glean from them. They were written to establish that Jesus Christ perfectly kept God's law for His entire life even as an infant when keeping the law was beyond his control. Now, this may not seem at all important, 
but it is actually critical to your salvation. Jesus came to take your place, to die in your place as your substitute on the cross at Calvary. His death is only applicable if He was sinless His entire life and if He perfectly kept and fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. This short summary of Jesus' childhood years established that He did, in fact, keep and fulfill the law of God to the letter. He kept and fulfilled the law of God as an infant and then as a child because of the obedience of His parents, Joseph and Mary. All it would have taken to short-circuit things would have been for them to fail to circumcise Jesus on the eighth day or to ignore one of the other important commanded observances. But they didn't. They were godly parents, and we can therefore glean some things from them to help us parenting our own kids. And so let's look at the text again, beginning in verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Joseph and Mary were still in Bethlehem. In all likelihood, they were at Joseph's ancestral home because he was from Bethlehem, and they would have had a local priest come and perform the circumcision and go through the ceremony. Jewish boys were circumcised and given their name on the eighth day of their life. It was more than customary, it was commanded. Joseph and Mary saw to it that Jesus was circumcised and named according to the law. Physical circumcision means nothing today from a spiritual standpoint. I say that because occasionally as a pastor, I'll get a call from a frantic young mother, and she'll say, I was just reading Leviticus. Hey, right on, you're spiritual. And, and it says in there that my son was supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day, and it's been 12 days. What does that mean? And I'll say, it's too late. <laughs> no, I don't. You're four days short, you know. So, but uh, no, I'm able to say it doesn't, doesn't matter at all from a spiritual standpoint. Circumcision means nothing. The New Testament says uncircumcision means nothing, but all are in Christ. And, and so it's a medical issue. It is uh, not at all a cultural issue, but it's not a spiritual issue. Circumcision always symbolized a spiritual commitment to be separated to God by the cutting away of the flesh. By flesh, the Bible means our physical appetites and drives, and especially our inclinations to indulge them for selfish reasons. And so the idea of circumcision was an outward symbol that you desire to cut away the sin and, and of, the, of your flesh and to live for God. Your kids, girls and boys, need spiritual circumcision. And, and very simply, what that means is that you must understand that they were born sinners. That's hard for young moms and dads when they're holding junior or juniorette or whatever, you know, the girl would be. And, and um, sinners, isn't that a little bit harsh? You mean I'm supposed to tell my child as he or she grows up that they're a sinner in need of salvation? What will that do to their self-esteem? Well, your kids, they have all the self-esteem they need. Their self-esteem needs to 
come into uh, understanding. I mean, they, they don't have an inferiority complex when they're born. They have a superiority complex. They want it, and they want it now. Any mother can distinguish the cries of her child. There, are, there is that, you know, serious cry that something's wrong, and then there's the defiant crying, I am not going to sleep. I want more milk. You are going to deal with this right now, or I'm going to ruin your life. I am the... <laughs> I am the seven-pound, eight-ounce center of the universe. And so, you know, it, it's not a matter. Your, your kids are sinners. They inherited some of your traits, didn't they? Hopefully mostly from the mother in most cases. And uh, they've also inherited spiritual characteristics because Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And when God said, when you sin, it's going to have really bad effects on all of your offspring. You're going to die. Uh, you're going to begin to die physically. You're going to die immediately spiritually. And if you don't come to know Christ, you're going to die forever. And, and that is passed down it, through the ages to your children. And so your children need a spiritual circumcision. And what that means to you is that you need to recognize they are sinners in need of a Savior and be in a mode of sharing Christ with them from the earliest possible age. Verse 22, now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Two different ceremonies are going on here, presentation and purification. Now, we think of presentation in terms of a baby dedication or an infant baptism. It was something quite different. This was a ceremony paying the Lord a ransom for your son. He had to be redeemed from the Lord as if he were a slave. It was to remind the Jews that God had redeemed them when they were slaves in Egypt by the slaying of the Passover lambs. And instead of the firstborn sons being killed, they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. As a result, they belonged to God, and God brought them out into the wilderness and became their God and father to their nation. And so what this is symbolizing is that the children, the firstborn of the Lord, he also belongs to God, and the parents bought him back from God to raise on his behalf. Your kids really do belong to God. You ever, I'm sure somebody's told you that, that they are his and they're only on loan to you. I, sometimes you want to take that really seriously and loan them back. <laughs> Can I get another loan, you know, or whatever and stuff? But nevertheless, your kids really do belong to the Lord, and they're on loan to you. And s since that's true, you're going to want to redeem the time that you have with them and raise them in a manner pleasing to God, to whom they belong. That might seem obvious, but often spiritual things are the last on the list of priorities and activities in the busy lives of people and children. Kids can be awful busy, can't they, with different musical activities and sports activities and school activities and activity activities, and I mean, they just keep getting busier and busier. And, and not to rebuke anybody, but it's, it's, 
many times, you know, people come and they start coming to church. Their kids are 8, 10, 12 years old, and they say, well, we want to start getting some spiritual instruction for our kids now that they're older. And they've covered every other priority in the life of their child in terms of, you know, whether it would be sports or music or whatever, and, and then they turn to the spiritual. The spiritual needs to be at the center of all those other activities, and, and they need to spring from that uh, because, remember, they're little sinners and they need to come into contact with that information as soon as possible. And so don't wait. If you're a young parent or if you know young parents, encourage them to get into church and to get their kids involved with the things of the Lord. Purification was a separate ritual. For 40 days after the birth of a son and 80 days after the birth of a daughter, the mother was considered ceremonially unclean and could not enter the temple. The offering here, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, was one of the possible offerings. It was the one prescribed for those who were extremely poor and couldn't afford a better offering. And so this tells us that Joseph and Mary had little from a material standpoint, but their lives were rich in spiritual treasures. Um, I don't know if you have much or little from a material standpoint, but you really want to be rich in spiritual treasure, in spiritual heritage. That's where true riches lie. Purification reminded the parents that they too were sinners in need of cleansing. How do we get clean today? Well, the Bible says it's through God's Word and confession. Jesus said in John 15 verse 3, you are clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. And other places, the Bible is called, uh, or we're told that we can have the washing of the water of the Word of God. Jesus made it simple. He got down and He washed the disciples' feet. And when He came to Peter, Peter said, you are never going to wash my feet. You're the Lord. And, Peter, and Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be one of my disciples. And Peter said, then give me a bath while you're at it because I want the whole thing. And Jesus said, no, here's the deal. You're already clean spiritually as if you had a bath if you're a believer. But on a day-to-day -day basis, as you're out in the world and struggling in your own heart against sin and different things, you get defiled. Sin comes into your life. And so you need the Word of God to cleanse you, and so you read it, and it washes you spiritually. And then later on, the Apostle John would add, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so very simply, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, and then I'm out in the world or I'm struggling in, you know, with my own issues, and I, I sin and I do the wrong things, I, things I don't want to do, I do, and things I want to do, I don't do. God shows me that through His Word, and then I agree with Him, which is what the word confession means, to just agree with God, say, God, yes, you're right, and I'm wrong. You're God, and I'm not and I agree with you, and I ask you to forgive me. Now, Luke portrayed Joseph and Mary as godly parents. They kept the letter of God's law going through all the required rituals according to the proper schedule. Some people think it would be easier if we had similar requirements. Churches often adopt certain rituals as if they were commanded in Scripture, like infant baptism or dedication or first holy confession or confirmation. It's surprising to people to find out that the Bible prescribes no such rituals. 
we've been set free to enjoy a personal, intimate relationship with God. And in all honesty, I can tell you that you don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to pray. But you get to do those things, and you want to do those things. That's the difference. And so it's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of what I have to do. It's a matter of the excitement of what I get to do because I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so I don't wake up on Sunday morning and roll over and think, oh, Sunday. I wonder if Gene knows I was in church last week because that'll give me a grace period, you know. Everybody has to miss church every now and then. No, I missed church last week too. He's going to see me at Save Mart. I know he is. I always run into Gene just, if he's not at church, he's at Save Mart. He only, I, I, it seems like I'm at Save Mart, else I just buy one thing at a time. It's like a spy mission I go on, you know. I just walk up and down all the aisles to see who's there that wasn't in church. That's what people think. But I do, I run into people at Save Mart, and I've run, you think I'm talking about you, and I am, because I've run into, <laughs> I've run into a lot of you at Save Mart, and, and it's kind of comical to me. People, they, they feel guilty. I make people feel guilty. And they start telling me why they weren't in church. You know? <laughs> Sometimes I blow their minds and I say, well, I don't even go there anymore. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then I have to listen to their excuse, you know, and, and I have to determine, you know, do I say something or, you know, and stuff. And I just, usually I'm very gracious and I say, hey, we're still there. You know, come and visit us. We're having a great time and stuff. And it's not always that people don't want to come. I mean, you know, that's what the beauty of the New Testament. I mean, you don't have to come to church on Sunday. Some people can't make church on Sunday, and so they come at other times. But the idea is not that you have to come, but that you get to come. You want to come. You get up Sunday morning, you think, man, let's get to church. You never know what's liable to happen there. <laughs> I need to find out what happens to Jesus when he's 12 years old. What are they going to say about that? I've been looking at that. That seems weird to me. What's going on? And we're excited about the worship and the Word of God. It's a big difference. Now, a relationship with Jesus does what no ritual can. It fills our mind and heart with love for Him to direct our every desire and decision. When relationship and not ritual is our foundation, we raise our kids in an atmosphere of enjoying God rather than enduring Him. Sadly, a lot of us have been raised in an atmosphere of enduring God, drugged to church, to listen to things that are so weird and with a bunch of weird people that don't really have any joy and, and it's all ritualistic and dark and, you know, it, it has no semblance of any reality. And as children, you can't wait to quit going. I know after I was confirmed, I couldn't wait to get out of that place. I kissed the bishop's ring and I never looked back. That was it for me. That was my last religious act. I'd been baptized and holy confession and holy confirmation, and I left my lips on that guy's ring, and that was it. I thought, man, I'm in. I'm Italian. I'm Catholic. <laughs> I've gone through all of those rituals. I'm there. There is no way I'm going back to listen to them chant in Latin anymore. I'm just not going to do that. And church had no real impact on me. It was, it was like anti-church. It's as if people get together and they think, how can we make church as miserable as possible so that none of our children want to go there? 
and then we'll force them to go to prove something. It's sad. It's a tragic mess. Two remarkable saints were sent by God to the temple. We read about them beginning in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The consolation of Israel is another name for the Christ. You find this in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's another name for the Messiah that was promised the Jews. Somehow it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. It may have been a prophecy spoken to him by someone else, perhaps even Anna, who we will meet in a moment. Or it may have been given directly to him by God in that mysterious way in which we say that God speaks to us. Not audibly, not, you know, in a sense like, hey, honey, did you say something? Oh, no, it must have been God. I better go. Let me get into the, you know, convergence where he speaks. Not in an audible way, but in the still small voice of our heart. At any route, uh, at any event, rather, he knew that he was going to see the Messiah before he died. Now, we presume that he was old because he talks about death and departing, but you're never really told he was old. And I only point that out to say that we should be careful when we read God's Word not to read into it too much. And so maybe he was old. Maybe he wasn't. All we know is that he was there that day and that God had spoken to him sometime before and said he would see Jesus before he died. Something amazing occurred in all of their lives when the phone rang. Maybe God called him. <laughs> Should have had that ring just a few minutes earlier. It would have been perfect. <laughs> See, it could have been, maybe he got a prophecy, maybe it was a so small, or maybe it was Verizon, <laughs> which in the Greek means I should have turned my phone off, you know, so. Okay, I'm going to, once one phone goes off, everybody kind of, okay. Are we all off? So here he is one day, the Holy Spirit prompts him to get over to the temple. And there he saw Jesus and declared him to be salvation to all people, Gentile and Jew alike. To Gentiles, he would be a revelation since they were ignorant of him and not expecting him. To the Jews, he would be glory, the one promised from the beginning of time. Interesting, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but let me share this with you. Different audiences, different announcements. To the Gentiles, a revelation because they didn't know anything. To the Jews' glory. You talk to Jesus to different types of people, and you need to know your audience to a certain extent. And what this boils down to is this if you've been a Christian for a while, you talk in Christian language, Christianese, and, and you say really weird things, things that you would have thought were weird if people said them to you, like, I've been saved by the blood. And, you know, if you're a Gentile, pagan, heathen, unbeliever, and somebody says, have you been washed in the blood? 
It sounds like a satanic ritual. Are you guys doing human sacrifice? Are you sacrificing animals? What blood are you talking about? Or if you tell people that they need to be consecrated and sanctified, whoa, man, that sounds awful. (laughs) Not me. I'll pass on that. And so just know who you're talking to and get into a, like, I'm going to be normal mode and not sound really spiritual and use words that nobody understands and, and try and explain things. And so know your audience. Now, I, uh, something amazing happened here. Things about Jesus had been revealed to Simeon, and he came uh, just at the time Anna came and just at the time the baby was there. Many more things about Jesus have been revealed to each and every one of us. I mean, the tendency is to look at Simeon and to think, man, that guy was so spiritual, and wouldn't it be cool if God did that in our lives? You know more about Jesus than Simeon did. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and and, I mean, you know a lot about Jesus. Uh, and, And so Simeon came with the expectation that one day, one time only, he would see the Messiah. You and I can come to any service at any time with the expectation that we will meet with Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ who promised to be in our midst. He lived in a constant expectation, and we should come to our fellowship every time with an expectation to see Jesus. We see Him as we hear about Him and as He touches our hearts. Verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Okay, that puts a different spin on things. Simeon's words about the fall and rising can be interpreted either of two ways. One is that a person must fall in humility before Jesus before they can rise and experience spiritual life. Or two, Jesus will divide people into two groups, those who reject Him and fall and those who receive Him and rise. Both of those are actually true, so we don't really need to decide between them. You are called upon to fall before the Lord as your Savior, and when you do, you are raised up with spiritual life. If you refuse and reject Jesus, you're going to be left in your fallen condition to face judgment for your sins. The thoughts of many hearts are revealed whenever Jesus Christ is preached. Jesus divides people. You talk about Jesus and you say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You have a decision to make. Either you believe that or you don't. Either you receive Jesus as your Savior or you reject him. There's no middle ground. Simeon had a personal word for Mary. She would suffer as if a sword was piercing through her own soul. In a strange way, this would be a comfort for Mary. You might as well know suffering is coming and that it's in the plan of God for you so that when it comes, it doesn't strike you as odd or unusual. Verse 36, now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him of all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. The phrase of great age used in conjunction with the other numbers seems to indicate that she was older than 84. 
She may have been a widow for 84 years, making her well over 100 years old. Having lost her husband, she did not remarry, but spent all her time in the temple fasting and praying. She prophesied over the baby Jesus and added her testimony to Simeon's. The priests and people would have taken heed to these two spiritual witnesses. It says, Anna came in that instant. God orchestrated this beautiful drama. Godly parents brought their baby. Both Simeon and Anna were prompted by the Holy Spirit to come at just that moment. God released His power through their spiritual gifts. Joseph and Mary's parenting furnished Jesus a rich spiritual background. They did it by keeping the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law. It wasn't a ritual for them. It was a relationship. The disciplines of your Christian life, Bible reading and prayer and church attendance, they can be rituals or they can be a relationship. If they are rituals, your kids will suffer for it. If they are part of your relationship, you will provide a rich spiritual background for your kids, a good foundation for them to build upon. Your kids can find their spiritual business from your parenting, verses 39 through 51. Now, let's agree that Jesus was altogether unique as a child. Still, He was a human, and we can learn from His example. Verse 39, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus' first miracle would be turning water into wine at a wedding when he was 30. So we conclude that nothing remarkable occurred during his childhood. The description given of his unremarkable early years provides a good framework for parenting your own kids on a day-to-day basis. First of all, you want your child to grow physically, but to also become strong in spirit. You're to feed them physical food and spiritual food. You're to exercise them physically and spiritually. Second, you want your child to be filled with wisdom, not just knowledge, even of the Bible, but wisdom, the application of knowledge. You want them to think about life from a heavenly, eternal perspective using the Bible as the source of true wisdom and knowledge. We are eternal beings. We need to think about being with Jesus and look at our life backward from that point and see everything that happens in our lives as it relates to eternity. And thirdly, you want your child to have the grace of God upon him or her. To do that, you must model before them a life of joy in knowing and serving God, emphasize grace, what God has done for you, rather than works, what you must do for God. Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and he was 12 years old. They went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Joseph wisely took his entire family with him every year to the feast of the Passover. It speaks volumes about his husbanding and parenting and about his spiritual leadership in that home. He was concerned about the spiritual dynamics of his entire family. He didn't see the Feast of the Passover as a time for him to get together and get away with his good buddies and hang out in Jerusalem where a lot of wild things were going on. He wanted to keep it in the Lord, and he brought his family with him. 
The custom of the feast was to stay for a week. Then they started back on the three-day journey. They no doubt traveled with a large group of family or friends. They assumed Jesus was with another group in their caravan. When they camped for the night, he was nowhere to be found. Now it was after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. They had traveled one day, took them another day to return. On the third day, they found him. He had never left the temple. The teachers of the Jewish law would sit around asking difficult questions of one another, then working out answers that seemed biblical. Verse 47 says that all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. This is remarkable because Jesus was not using his divine powers and attributes. He had not entered into his public ministry. See, I used to think of Jesus in this encounter stumping these guys, you know, asking them if they had heard of the Pythagorean theorem and then saying, and I created Pythagoras, by the way, and, you know, all of this kind of wild stuff that nobody could know. But Jesus didn't really enter into that kind of miraculous thing until his ministry. And so he was astonishing them as a 12-year-old boy who had been raised in the Scriptures. And you know what that teaches us? You should expect more from your kids. No one expects anything from their children anymore. All you have to do is go to the mall and walk around. You know, kids are running around. They're tearing clothes off the rack. They're tearing them to shreds. And parents have that look. It's, there's a certain look that they get when they look at you and they say, what could be done? It's impossible. My child is out of control and all children are. And boy, I wish there was hope, but there isn't. And, and it's sad. We, we don't expect much from children anymore. We don't expect them to be respectful or to, to uh, respect, you know, authority or property. Uh, we need to expect a lot more from our kids. Verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. They were amazed but anxious. Even spiritual kids can cause you anxiety. You wonder what is going on with them and where they are headed ultimately. Verse 49, he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus was 12. At age 13, he would be considered a full adult member of the Jewish community. Bar mitzvah, as Jews practice it today, would not become a custom for some time. Instead, the Jews had a custom of calling a 13-year-old son, quote, a son of the commandment, and it signified that he was now a full adult member of the synagogue. Jesus knew that when he was 13, he would be more than a son of the commandment. He knew that he was the son of God in a unique way that allowed him to call God his father. If you believe in Jesus, you become a child of God and you call him father. It's really quite amazing to be able to call the creator of the universe father. We do it so often that we lose a sense of how wonderful it really is. You know, people talk about the man upstairs or the big man in the sky or, you know, they, it's a, only Christians know God as their father. They've been born again into the family of believers, and they call the Creator their Father. They call Him Daddy, it says in one portion of Scripture. We cry Daddy in an endearing, intimate way. Your kids need to see that you are a child of God and not just a member of a church or somebody going through the motions. Verse 50, they did not understand the statement which He spoke to them. 
Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Three more good pieces of parenting advice. You want your child to increase in wisdom. You need to establish, therefore, a consistent, disciplined pattern of exposure to the Bible where they will find God's wisdom. Secondly, you want your child to increase in stature. Stature means maturity. This probably has more to do with the things that we would consider secular, like socializing them or schooling them. But even these must be saturated with spiritual things. If you think about your kid's school or their social contacts in terms of how it affects them spiritually. And thirdly, you want your child to increase in favor with God and men. This is an odd phrase. The word for favor is a derivative of the word for grace. The idea here seems to be that your child grows to understand that he or she is to grace God and grace men by selflessly serving them. Remember I told you your child was born a sinner? They think that they're the center of the universe. We're to teach them that they are to selflessly serve God, and they do that by serving others. And therefore, they grow in the grace of God. They grow in favor with God and men. Jesus wanted to be about His Father's business. Your kids need to discover what God's business is for their lives. It doesn't mean that they are all called to careers as missionaries or ministers in the classic sense. It does mean that they choose the career that God has planned for them and that in whatever career they choose, they selflessly serve God as His ministers or missionaries. And so, you know, as a father, as a mother, we have ideas about what we would want and desire for our children. We always want what's best for our kids, and, and that's not wrong. We should want what's best for our kids. As long as we don't confuse material things or status things or social things as what's best for our children. And we can fall into that even as Christians, thinking, I want my kid to have the best of this life, to, to have more than I had, and to not have any struggles and those kinds of things. And so we try and steer them in a certain material direction. And we just need to be careful that that is also the spiritual direction that God has chosen for them. Because remember, they're on loan to us from God, and God has already before ordained good works that they should discover and walk in them. And so we need to humble ourselves as parents and say, now, Lord, what is your plan for my son or for my daughter? And whatever it is, whatever career path it is, notwithstanding that children follow into their father's footsteps or whatever, that's okay. But whatever career is, in that career, they are to consider themselves a missionary, a person that is surrounded most often by unbelievers who need to hear about Jesus Christ in a way that they can understand. And, and what a joy that is because some of those people are never going to come to church on their own to hear about God. In church, we hear about God and we take that where we live and we are the missionary. Or they're a minister in the sense that they want to serve the people there and, and maybe even minister to the Christians that are there. And so wherever your children are, they're to be missionaries and ministers. Jesus perfectly kept God's law even as an infant and a child. He satisfied and fulfilled everything that God's law commanded and demanded. When He took your place on the cross, the law of God that declares you a guilty sinner was voided and canceled. 
You're instead able to be declared righteous if you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If or when you are a parent, you have the responsibility of passing on these truths to your children. You can do it with joy and enjoyment. You can do it out of a relationship with God rather than as a ritual. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.